Hi there, this is Steve, but this isn't the beginning of the show. Before we begin, I invite you to check out my free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence. If you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or leader with financial responsibility in your company, you'll definitely not want to miss this one. I'll cover how a winning strategy combined with operational excellence drives higher cash flow and firm value. You can watch it for free at cultbar.com. I'll also link it in the show notes below. I hope you enjoy it. You're listening to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast, a podcast for entrepreneurs, business leaders, and professionals who want to elevate their game and reach new levels of abundance and success. I'm Steve Coffrin, the founder of Coltvar, and I've spent my entire career growing and turning around companies, and together we'll explore the latest happenings in the world of strategy and finance. Let's do this. Before we begin, just remember that this podcast is for educational purposes and the information shared herein should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Check out our terms and conditions in the show notes to learn more. Now on to the show. Vince, welcome to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast. I'm excited for today's episode because leadership and talent, like talent management, is so critical right now. And I'm excited to talk to you more about this this topic and get more into um, your thoughts and your book and everything else. So welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Steve. Looking forward to the conversation. For sure. So I'm always curious about people's journey. So you're an expert in leadership transformation. You're an author, business owner. Um, you have quite the impressive background. Can you tell us about your journey to this point in life? Well, you know, it, um, you know, for me, it began, you know, in my early 20s, you know, my first job out of uh, my first undergraduate degree was with a large public sector organization that did really important work. Uh, We helped some of the neediest people in our community get their lives back on track through re-education, retraining, access to jobs. And so the the, the work was meaningful. I was there to help them with kind of getting their lives to a better place. And, and so that was really compelling and purposeful. Uh, and yet what I found was when I joined this large organization, I was struck by the feeling of the office that I went to every day. And while the work was really meaningful, the office environment was dreadful. You know, you, you could walk in and all you saw was old desks, uh, you know, beige walls and ceilings and, and, and the people kind of resembled their work environment. Everyone showed up really committed to the clients they served, but not really committed to the organization. There was just this sense of apathy, not a lot of excitement. And there I was, you know, my first job entering the real world of work, kind of thinking, uh, is this it? Is this what the world of work is going to be like? And all I have to do now is show up for the next 40 or 45 years, be a loyal employee. And maybe at the end of it, someone will give me a watch and a little cake celebration. <laughs> and and so I, I you know, I, I kind of put those ideas aside and just got busy doing my job. And, you know, many, many months later, uh, a senior manager named Zinda kind of approached me one day, took, you know, kind of, I didn't realize at the time she was taking me under her wing. And she said, you know, you're doing great work. I see what you're doing. She wasn't even my manager. She was my manager's manager. So I rarely interfaced or interacted with her. And uh, in this conversation, she said, I see what you're doing. It's great. Uh, but I think you want to have more impact on this place. And I was shocked. I, I, I didn't even know how she knew that because I never shared that with anyone. I, I just saw so much potential for that work environment to be better. And she made me an offer. She said, listen, I'm going to set up a small committee. I'd like you to be on it. And, and the goal is to make this a better work environment. Um, and I jumped at the opportunity. And under her leadership, we started to put some really simple things in place. And remarkably, uh, things began to change for the better. So these individuals who really were like zombies showing up, you know, Monday to Friday every day, like zombies, all of a sudden you start to see more commitment, more engagement, more vitality, more sense of positivity. And I realized, wow, what impact one manager like Zinta could have. And, and so I was feeling at that time, well, maybe there is a future for me at this place, you know, with someone like her as a leader. And then disaster struck. Um, Zinta was diagnosed with lung cancer. She had to leave immediately to start her treatments. And then everything started to kind of unravel ever so slowly in her absence. And not only that, those of us uh, who worked with her who were on this committee, we started to get sidelined and marginalized by upper management. It was like they were sending us a message somehow because of our work with her. And at the time, you know, we were young and naive and not really understanding office politics. And eventually, unfortunately, she, she passed away. Uh, but before that happened, I went to visit her in her home. And at that time, she informed me of 
kind of her experiences as a senior manager in that organization and described a toxic management culture, the infighting, the the politicking, everyone kind of upping against one another, pitting each other against each other, sabotaging one another. It was a dreadful environment. I was oblivious to it all as a frontline employee. And then she said in that visit that she believed that the cancer she was fighting was a direct result of the stress she endured spending her career in that environment. And so I walked away from that visit just with a ton of bricks just crashing down on my head. I couldn't make sense of everything. And um, two weeks after that visit, she wrote me a letter uh, challenging me, encouraging me. Imagine who does that when they're you know, fighting for their own lives. She reached out to a colleague. And two weeks after I got that letter, she passed away. And so I had to make a decision about what I was going to do with my life. And I decided that at some point I needed to leave, which I eventually did. But I left on a mission to really work with leaders who have a passion to not just run successful companies, but also to create a great place for their employees to work that then in turn create great experiences for their customers. And that's in many ways what I've been doing ever since. Uh, I've had the privilege of working with some you know, great leaders, but I've also taken those ideas to heart in, in how I've led as well, the, the businesses that I was that I had the privilege to lead. And, and now I'm back to my own business. So I was 27 when I left that organization. I started my own consulting company. And, and then that's what I've done ever since. So it's always about leadership. It's about culture. And that's been a consistent theme. And I mean, would you say that that was like enough of a pivotal moment in your life that it's like fueled this passion, you know, for you ever since? For sure. Like it is, it is the, um, you know, it, it is that defining moment for me, right? And everything I do uh, goes back to that moment because I got to see, you know, a lot of times you're in a company where the culture, you know, there, there is apathy, there is disengagement, and you think it's not changeable. And I saw that it was under the right leader and the right manager. It's not easy because, you know, when she left, things began to unravel. But then I realized as I understood that toxic culture that she was in, that those senior leaders never wanted it to be great. They just, you know, they were more concerned about their own careers, you know, their own sense of entitlement and not really thinking about employees uh, and in many ways, even our, even our clients. And so that was the real awakening that I had early in my career. Yeah. I mean, because, I mean, I think it's important to have this passion because if you're not super passionate about the topic of leadership and people, I mean, I got to imagine that it could be frustrating at times or discouraging or whatever word you want to put behind it because you're dealing with people, right? And people are so dynamic and we all have our, you know, our issues and intricacies and nuances and all these things. I mean, it's got to be challenging sometimes along with the rewarding part. Like, obviously it's been rewarding for you to be doing this since you're 27, I mean, talk to me a little bit about that, that whole process. I work with organizations as well. And like, you know, you could go in there and you can help them like with the strategy, you can help them, you know, with best practices and you could give them all the tools, but at the end of the day, they have to execute. And sometimes you see companies and they execute and they follow guidance and they, you know, they're, they're doing a great job and, and not saying all the guidance is right. Right. Oftentimes they do their thing too, coupled with guidance and um, they achieve amazing results, right? And together you achieve things and it's like, wow, this is so exciting, so transformative. I can't believe it. But then there's other organizations where you're just like, oh my gosh, like you don't get it. And then they struggle and then it's, it can be kind of depressing. Well, and I think in, in that, in that's in that latter example, I think what happens is, uh, you know, I think a lot of times the managers and leaders don't fully appreciate what it's going to take and particularly what it's going to take from them. So, you know, in, in, in my book, The Leadership Contract uh, that came out in 2013, I, uh, at that time, I was really reflecting on what I was seeing, particularly as we came out of the great financial crisis. Anytime, uh, like we're experiencing now, anytime we go through a significant crisis, I think we as humans, but also organizations kind of step back and reevaluate, right? They, and at that time, they were reevaluating their business models, reevaluating a, a number of things they were doing, and they were reevaluating their investment in leadership development. And I began to, at that time, see this new problem where companies were saying, we're investing heavily in leadership development, but we're not seeing it translate into better leadership. And it's like, they don't understand what it means to be a leader. And, and that and it was one, one particular meeting when the, the, the senior executive I went to talk to said that, I just sort of said, wait a minute, that's, 
that that's like really kind of an interesting way of framing up this problem. I got to dig into it. And in that book, The Leadership Contract, what I came to realize was that a lot of us take on leadership roles. Uh, and this has been the classic story. We, you know, when I ask people, and I've traveled all over the world, I ask this question and I ask folks, well, how did you first get into a managerial or leadership role? And Steve, the number one answer is, well, if I'm going to be honest, I got in by accident, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and usually it's because they were great at something technical, right? They were the best engineer. Uh, they were the best salesperson. They were the best analyst. You, you pick it. You know, you, they were the best lawyer. It doesn't matter what the area of technical expertise is. When you excel at something, uh, your performance stands out relative to everyone else. And we've had a history of going to those people and say, you're so good at this thing. Now we're going to give you this other job that's completely different. Good luck with that. Well, by the way, we'll give, you a, we'll give you a cooler title so you'll feel good about yourself. We'll pay you more money and we'll throw a couple of perks at you, maybe a nice parking spot or something. Sure. And, and, and it's natural. We, we, we grab onto it because it makes perfect sense. But what we don't realize is we actually sign up for something really important anytime we take a, a leadership role. So there is this contract. I think it's always existed, but it's been largely implicit. And certainly what I've seen over the last decade has been just an inc ever increasing set of expectations on what we need from our leaders in order to drive a successful company. And, and we just, over the last 15 to 18 months, saw those expectations take a, you know, ratchet up to another level, given, you know, virtual remote working, uh, engagement, having to now be thinking about mental health, uh, empathy, compassion. And so I've just seen uh, certainly this ever increasing set of expectations on leaders. And so there's a contract, it comes with four terms. And the first term is, it's a decision. And you've got to understand what's, you know, what the role's about. You've got to understand those expectations. And then you've got to decide whether you're all in or not. Because to your earlier point, driving the kind of change that you referenced isn't, doesn't happen by accident. It requires conviction. It requires real determination because it's not easy. And it's not easy to run successful companies. There's always you know, stuff happening, like we've seen over the last year and a bit, that will challenge us. And so we need to really be clear on that decision to be the leader, to define yourself as a leader. And if you're not up for it, it's perfectly fine for you to say, it's not for me. Can I go back to a technical role? Because that's where I feel I can add more value. I think that's perfectly fine for anyone to do because then they're really owning their role, owning their career. The last right. thing we can do is have someone in a leadership role and be in it uh, in an ambivalent way. Explain that. Well, you know, I think it's you, you take on the role, you know, you take on the role, maybe because the company's asked you and you feel, you know, yes, I'm going to do this for my boss. You take on the role because in most companies, it's the track that pays more money or, you know, they've got the cooler titles. Well, who wouldn't want to be vice president of so-and-so or executive vice president of so-and-so. But if those are the reasons you take on the role um, and you, you know, don't embrace it, then, then you're going to struggle. The other thing I uncovered, which was, a, you know, another uh, aha in, in the work that I did was we were talking about this very idea in a program uh, a number of years ago. And as, a, as I was talking about leadership as a decision, one of the participants uh, in the sessions is a group of senior leaders, like in an angry tone in, a, in the group, just blurted out, I never got to make the decision. And, and whenever you get that reaction when you're leading a, a leadership session, you're kind of curious. So I go, well, you know, tell me what, what's, what's the reaction about it. And he talked about his career and his career was, was like textbook leadership career. He was an engineer by training, loved to be an engineer, was great at it. His performance <laughs> rised above the rest. And guess what? One day his manager came to him, tapped him on his shoulder and said, I'd like you to be a team lead. I need you to do this. And he said, yes. Right. He didn't think about the contract. In fact, he treated it more like an online contract. He just kind of clicked agree. He didn't read anything on, his, uh, on, uh, on that online contract. And then he had success. And, he, and when he was in the program, he was uh, you know, VP of engineering services for his company. But in it, he said, you know, even though I got to this level, I actually still think of myself as an engineer first and leadership is my part-time job. And when he said that, the whole room went quiet and I realized, oh my goodness, this is what's going on in all of our companies and we don't realize it. We have people that were paying full-time salaries to be leaders 
who don't even think of themselves as leaders. They're, they're, they, they actually haven't evolved from their true love, which was that technical thing that they do. And there's nothing, I'm not being critical of it. We just have to be aware of it and support leaders to understand that. So back to your earlier point, if you're going to drive change, drive transformation, create compelling cultures, you got to be clear that leadership is your main thing and that's how you're defining yourself and you're fully committed to the role. Hey, real quick, I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you're an entrepreneur or business leader and you want to take your game to the next level or you want to avoid being crushed out there during these uncertain times, be sure to check out our free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence by visiting cultivar.com or through our Boosting Your Financial IQ app. I'll link this in the show notes as well. I'm also offering some freebies, so be sure to check it out. Now back to the show. I mean, do you think there's certain attributes that make a leader successful? Like, for example, do you have to be tall or charming or, you know, polite and kind or shrewd or have a good set of hair because, you know, I'm short and bald. So am I in big trouble or are there other attributes that you think are defining or do you think anybody can be a leader and can be successful? Well, you know, the, it, it's a great, it's a great question. And, and I join you in the uh, short and uh, thinning hair club, <laughs> uh, but the, um, you know, it, it reminds me of the longstanding topic around are leaders born or are they made? Mm-hmm. And, and to me, I find that that conversation really doesn't take you anywhere uh, because ultimately leadership is a human attribute. We all have the potential to, to lead and we all lead in one way or another. The difference is, Really, you know, how effective are you and how passionate are you about the role? And and some of us, like all human attributes, uh, some of us are naturally better at certain things than others. But the reality is we all can be leaders. We all have the ability if you're prepared to do the work that's necessary. And so that to me is, is really the critical piece. Now, I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out, so what's the best way for someone to be the most effective leader they can be. And, and, and there's, a, there's no shortage of ideas out there. I mean, you know, my editor at Wiley tells me leadership is, you know, I, I think after cookbooks and romance novels, it's, it's the topic that's most written about. Um, yeah. So uh, it seems like, you know, there's just leadership books coming out with all these great ideas and they're valid, but they don't tend to get at the real essence of, you know, some say, oh, it's about authenticity. And some say you got to be a great communicator or a great storyteller, or you got to be a visionary. And, and all those things are accurate. But when I work with leaders, they say, I'm not sure how I get from where I am to where I need to be with those things. And when I said, you know, really stepped back and thought, what's really the quickest way that someone can become a more effective leader? Uh, that's where I landed on. It's about accountability. It's about leadership accountability, because like that contract, what I've learned is as humans, we hold anyone in the leadership role to a higher standard of behavior and accountability. And when they fail to step up to that expectation, we demand accountability. And we've seen it in the last year and a bit, you know, whether it's about how there, what has been the response to the pandemic and leaders who have been successful or not successful. We've seen it as a result of systemic racism issues and the cries for accountability. And we keep seeing that issue uh, emerge over and over again. Accountability and leadership are so interconnected and that that's where a lot of leaders miss it because they think that accountability is about everyone else but them. And I believe that you set the tone of accountability every single day you can't demand anyone else to be accountable unless you're first accountable yourself. So for me, that is the way forward. That's how you help people accelerate their effectiveness as leaders. It doesn't matter who they are now. They may not choose to want to be a leader. That's perfectly fine. But then we get back to that decision that you've got to make. Sure. Well, I think that's a great segue into your book. Um, accountable leaders inspire a culture where everyone steps up, takes ownership and delivers results. I mean, the, I think the the title nails it on the head. And, and really that's where organizations, if they want to be successful, if they want to execute, if they want to deliver results, excellent client experiences, all these things, you know, it's really about this accountability. So what inspired you to write this book? I know you've written four other books before that, but why this new book? And, and talk to me a little bit about your your thought process on this. Well, yeah. So uh, it goes back to the leadership contract that it came out in, in 2013. And, and immediately the idea started you know, resonating in the market. It became a New York Times bestseller. 
we built, you know, programs off of the ideas that we, you know, brought into, you know, companies around the world. And as they were, and, and, and that book really had a strong focus on how you, how you and me uh, can be more effective at an individual level as leaders, because that's where it begins, right? Gets back to, you need to set the tone. We all need to set the tone of accountability. And then as we were working with, um, our customers, they reflected on and saying, this is great work. uh, But you know what, the expectation of accountability goes beyond the individual level. We need leaders to be able to hold others accountable. We need them to be able to build teams that are accountable. We need leaders to work together across the organization, you know, across departments and divisions and functions to really execute our strategy. And to be honest, they really aren't good at that, you know, particularly this shared accountability that exists among peers. And so that was really the impetus for accountable leaders. It really built off of the leadership contract. Uh, I also wrote a leadership contract field guide, which accompanied the leadership contract, which was as a leader, here's how you implement this, these ideas individually. And then accountable leaders really took it to the next level. And it really shows um, really two things that if you are a leader, how do you embrace those ideas yourself? How do you hold other leaders accountable for being leaders? How do you build an accountable team? And how do you, how do you become a leader who builds community across the organization so leaders work more effectively together in a more horizontal way? And then there's a sort of four chapters at the end that are really written specifically for the board, the CEO, the head of human resources, and the senior executives because they have an additional accountability to support leaders to be accountable. And and so they've got to make leadership accountability a priority in how they lead. They've got to create a clear set of leadership expectations for their leaders that says, here's what it means to be a leader in our company. We find less than half of companies actually do that. So that has been in our research, another contributing factor for the challenges that companies have with their leaders. And so that, that's how that, you know, that book is sort of uh, divided. So it just kind of expands on really thinking about three levels of leadership accountability, individual team, and that shared level, and then a very specific focus for the senior executives on what they need to do to set the tone and support leaders uh, to be accountable. So let's talk about accountability because you know, at Cultivar, we do transformations and turnarounds with organizations. And, you know, a big ingredient of that is accountability. And we even have software where, you know, leaders can, they go in there with their strategy and they, they can define their initiatives and key results and they could track them. And, you know, it creates this transparency and accountability throughout the organization. And we always say that it empowers accountability rather than it's like a gotcha mechanism to say, Hey, look, Gotcha, right? But what's your thought on accountability? Do you think leaders really want accountability or where's the friction and the resistance when it comes to accountability? I, th- I think what ha- what I've learned um, in, in my work is it, it's, it's quite a loaded word and that we, we kind of define it differently. So in some cases, uh, the term accountability has this gotcha kind of element to it. Uh, and, I, and I even find it, you know, this is this happens culturally. So, for example, in my travels, I've done work in in Latin America, and the book's been translated into Spanish. And one of the biggest challenges that the translators had is that there isn't the uh, uh, there isn't the word accountability in the Spanish language. They have no way of even framing up the concept. And yet, when I went into those countries to speak about my work and leadership accountability. It was fascinating. They said, we don't have a word for accountability, but leadership accountability is our problem. So they know what the problem is, uh, even though they, they, they don't have the word. And, and ultimately, you know, to me, it's about personal ownership. It's about bringing a sense of urgency. It's about having the courage to do the difficult things we have to do as leaders. Um, it's about having, you know, uh, kind of deliberateness and decisiveness in, 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 how, in how you show up. And I think to your earlier point, do leaders want it? Um, you know, I think it's, it's what CEOs that I work with are most frustrated about. They, they want, particularly when new CEOs, they come into an organization and all they see is a series of accountability gaps and they can't seem to figure out how to get at them in a productive, in a productive way. I think some leaders also look at it like, 
well, accountability is about them. It's not about me. So, so they're trying to hold everyone accountable. I, I remember, you know, as a teenager, I worked in a men's um, clothing store, you know, part-time. It funded my way through school and whatnot. And it, anyhow, I had my first manager who hired me was great. He set the tone. He was all in. He inspired me. He would never ask us to do anything he wouldn't do himself. And then he got promoted to run the flagship store of the company. Um, and then in came his successor, and his successor had a very different perspective. In fact, every shift he would say, don't do as I do, do as I say, which is a very common management axiom that's thrown out. And I remember there's a teenager going, I'm not sure how that's, this is going to work uh, uh, because you know he came in on the heels of his predecessor who would never have said anything like that. But you know, this guy didn't realize he was setting up a double standard, right? a standard that he held himself to and a standard he held everyone else to. And that plays out a lot in organizations and it undermines people's ability to really want to step up and be accountable. Now, having said that, when you in the book, I talk about what the frustrations that managers and leaders have around accountability. Sometimes they feel like they don't have the authority to make decisions. In the book, I cite some research that in most large organizations, to get anything done, uh, a manager has to go through seven levels of approval. So you can imagine, you know, if you've got to make a decision and get it approved uh, at seven levels, that will erode your accountability in a pretty big way. So it also doesn't make you nimble and make you fast. Right. So, so there are a number of organizational mechanisms that erode at this sense of accountability that some well-meaning leaders do want to demonstrate, but then just feel like they're, you know, banging their head against the wall from, from, from time to time. So we've got to, and that's why in the book, I say there's really a dual response to leadership accountability. There's the individual response. I have to do my part. And then I need to be supported by the organization because if the organization allows these practices to go on, then you're just going to disengage your leaders. And, and at some point, they're just going to give up. And, and that's not a good place for your leaders to be. Well, and going back to your point about, you know, all these layers of, you know, approval that are necessary in some organizations, you know, I'm a big believer in structure. You know, I talk often about structure when it comes to yeah, like strategy. Me too. Like, like if you don't have structure, like you can put the best employee in the world in a poor structure and they're probably not going to fare very well. I think the structure is going to win every day yeah. of the week. Yeah. Um, you, you could put a mediocre employee in a company with a great structure and yeah. I think they can thrive. So yeah. what's your experience with like structure? I mean, you, you kind of mentioned it and you touched on it as far as like from a governance standpoint, but have yeah. you seen it in, in other areas where organizations you know they really do a disservice to their employees, to their top talent because of poor structures that exist. Yeah. You know, and what's interesting with, so for sure that, you know, that, that happens. And I think part of it is just this, you know, complexity of, of organizations that, that we, that we put in. And in the book, I cite uh, research that says, you know, that over a 10 year period, complexity has increased 35 times. And I can just imagine it probably feels like it's increased 35 times just in the last year and a bit. Right. So, so that, that I think is part of the challenge. I, I like using the term management discipline. Uh, because I think there is there is a value to structure about really figuring out you know the right leaders and the right roles, really paying attention and focusing on the right things. Leaders that are able to reach out across silos, because I hear a lot still about silos. And in my experience, be curious, you know, with your experience, Eva, I actually find that yes, silos are structural, and we default immediately to structure as the, we got to restructure in order to address the problem. But I find that um, a lot of the silos are in one's head uh, that prevent us from reaching out to colleagues, you know, and then there's sometimes the hidden rules with some managers that will prevent, you know, like everything's got to come through me. Uh, I won't have anyone on my team reach out to a peer or colleague unless I know about it. So sometimes that's not necessarily about structure. That's just about someone being a control freak and, and not unleashing their people to do their jobs. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk about these five C's that you mentioned in your book, context, clarity, credibility, celebration, and collaboration. Why do you think these concepts are so important? You know, I think in, in many ways there is, I mean, it all, it all roots in context, right? You know, if you, if you want to really kind of decide on being a leader to be fully committed, you got to understand the business environment you're operating in, the context you're operating in. So, you know, if you're leading a company that's in a fast growth uh, period of time, 
where you've got to scale uh, your company uh, fairly aggressively. Well, what it means to be a leader is that that's very different in, a, in an environment where maybe you're having to transform your business model and moving to digital. You know, the, the different expectations will emerge from that. But understanding your context is critical. In the book, I talk about research where I look at what are the behaviors of truly accountable leaders. And in high-performing companies, five behaviors surfaced at the top. And one of them was displaying clarity about your business environment. You know, so you know what's coming at you. You know your context. So that's that's important. And it's a big focus of always my work. And then, and related to that is the clarity. It's that clarity to understand the context, to understand the strategy, to understand what's expected of you. Because you can't bring clarity unless you're clear yourself as a leader. And I see that that's a really significant challenge in, in organizations. A lot of times our work is helping leaders get clear. And, and a lot of times the senior executives, you know, come back from their roadshows or town halls, they've been talking about their strategy. And then they find out no one understands the strategy. And they get so frustrated because how, how can no one understand the strategy? Well, it's, it's because it's not about communication is your job is to bring clarity. And that often means you're translating your strategy so people, you know, can really understand it. Uh, credibility is just the reality of, of, of today, you know, that, that ultimately your personal credibility is, is so important. And I'm not the only one who says this. A lot of people have written about this, that it's not about your title or your position. Nobody, nobody cares. And I can tell you, uh, millennials and, and Generation Z don't care about your title. Uh, they care about you as a person, whether you've built personal credibility, and, and they'll follow the leaders who, who have that. The celebration is interesting in that what we've noticed is um, in, a, in a lot of organizations, they, leaders admit that they don't take the time on a regular basis to pause and celebrate key achievements and milestones tied to the strategy. And so, unfortunately, what they miss is that that's not about celebrating as much as it's reinforcing what's working and you're making the connection back to your strategy and what we're achieving and the progress we've made and where maybe we're falling behind and where we've got to kind of catch up. So, and then the collaboration piece is just the reality of today. Uh, I, I just keep hearing it. Senior leaders saying, this is, I can't do this on my own. My senior team can't do this on my own. I need leaders to really step up to own their roles. They've got to work together. We've got to collaborate across silos to execute the strategy. More businesses have more integrated business strategies where functions and departments have to come together, uh, come together in ways they haven't traditionally. And so those are the reasons those ideas have become really prominent in, in that book. Sure. And I think that's interesting. And I agree with all those. I think those are all so important. Let me ask you this. What if a leader believes that they're a great leader, but in all actuality, they're not a very good leader. How do you, how do you like even recognize that in yourself? Does that make sense? Like, cause you, yeah. you don't want to, you don't want to deceive yourself, but somebody may be thinking, Hey, look, Vince, I'm a great leader. I don't really need your help. Our, our leadership team's great, but in all actuality, they may be a giant issue within their organization. How would you even know that? And how do you come to terms with that? Well, you know, one of the things, you know, that I talk about in, in kind of taking your leadership role seriously is, is, you know, that that's the first term, leadership is a decision. The second term is that leadership comes with obligation. And you need to be clear on, you know, what is your obligation, you know, to your organization, to your customers, uh, to the communities in which you do business, to your employees, and ultimately to yourself. And that is really the investment in yourself as the leader, because there's a lot of parallels, I think, between leadership and parenting. And, and, and I find that, you know, you never arrive, right? There's always, you know, that, that, that infant becomes a toddler who becomes a preteen, who becomes a teenager, and the teenager becomes an adult. And at each, at each of those steps, how you have parented has to evolve. And you may have been a great parent of a baby, but, um, you start dealing with a, a difficult preteen, it's a different a ball game altogether. And, and so I think leadership is the same way. We, we are just going to constantly be challenged. Our organizations are constantly being challenged. And why would you not be open to feedback? So I, you know, in, in the leadership contract field guide, I, I say to, to folks, don't wait to get feedback, go out and solicit feedback yourself. Because you can't be fooling yourself when you're in a leadership role. And I think a lot of times if, if a leader is, is, a, is a, and I think it's fear, I think if they're afraid to get that feedback, or if there is a, a massive blind spot, 
my experience is generally that's about insecurity. Um, and so you need to give people what we generally do is just try to normalize it, right? It's not about perfection. It's not about greatness. It's about understanding, um, you know, where are you strong and having, having meaningful impact? Where is the opportunity for you to be stronger? Where are your blind spots that you may not be understanding or recognizing how your behavior may be impacting people in a negative way? And, and, and where are the opportunities for you to get stronger? I think we just have to make that just far more acceptable for leaders to embrace that kind of thing. And then what's happening today, though, is, is something very, very different, right? Because it even goes back to my, my story with my colleague Zinta early in my career, because the question I asked always was, if it was so bad for her, why didn't she leave that toxic management culture? And I didn't realize the answer to many years later. She was a boomer, and the boomer career ethic was that you stuck it out no matter how bad it was, right? And I think sure. people don't, real, don't appreciate that boomers have worked with some of the worst managers that have ever existed. And I know that a millennial or, or someone who's in Generation Z would not put up with that. Millennials changed our workplace because they came in expecting to work with great leaders. And if they didn't get them, what happened? They left. Right. Easy. So if you find yourself having no one left to lead, that is feedback that you're not doing your job. Sure, <laughs> Simple. absolutely. And, and Generation Z is coming in with, I think they are the most sophisticated generation around leadership. And, and you know, my kids are in that group and I've seen their experiences. They have had more leadership development before they start their career than I've had in my entire career. And I'm a, and I'm a, a leadership advisor. And so they're going to be coming in with a more sophisticated understanding of what it means to be a leader. And if your organization doesn't have and isn't investing in, in really creating the best leadership, you're not going to attract them. They're not going to stay. Sure. I, I absolutely agree. I mean, they're going to vote with their feet for sure. Exactly. Exactly. And, and you know, we've always misunderstood millennials as well. They're not motivated. Uh, where's their loyalty? It's like, well, you know what? If you have them working with a group of mediocre leaders, I'd be frustrated too. Yeah, I'd leave too. Makes perfect sense. Yeah, life's way too short. I mean, and we spend exactly. so much time at work. I mean, we spend at least two thousand hours if we're working full time at a job. I mean, that's that's more time than we spend with our families oftentimes. And I just think life is way too short to be in a poisonous or toxic work environment or in a work environment yeah. that doesn't allow you to unlock your full potential. And I think nowadays and there's so many more options that people can, yeah. you know, yeah. walk out. Yeah, and I, and I build on that idea further in the book by saying life is too short to work for a mediocre or ineffective or toxic leader. Yeah, I agree. Let, let's shift gears and let's talk about remote work due to uh, the pandemic. Yeah. So how have you seen leaders reacting? And do you have any advice for leaders that are having a hard time managing remote employees? Yeah, that, that one's a little, it's interesting for me because I, I, I've done a lot of remote work. Uh, I've led global teams virtually. Um, and so the the shift, you know, was not a shift for me because we were already doing it. And what I find is, though, if if you've never done that at all, the leap is not insignificant. And what it means ultimately, and I, you know, I just uh, in the month of July, I do a, a weekly a blog called the Gut Check for Leaders, and and we focused uh, this month on the theme of trust because ultimately, I believe your success or failure in hybrid work is going to be about trust. Ultimately, when you don't see your team, when you don't see folks on a regular basis, you have to trust that they're going to perform to the expectations that you've set. So in many ways, the, the hybrid work and remote work is really easy. It's all about results. And if the results are there, awesome. If the results are there, then you're having different conversations. What I think leaders probably struggle with is just that there are new patterns that they've got to learn. And a good example is one, one leader that we've worked with. Um, he, he has a global team. And he, he was basically, when in office, he would use a morning person. So he'd be in there at 7 a.m., 7 a.m. every single day to 8.30. That was his time. And his teams knew that that's when they could, you know, if they needed to, you know, ping him on something quick, he's available for them. But it was more or less about operational, more about, hey, how you doing? It's more of that kind of thing. So when he pivoted to remote work, he, he found that that, in fact, he just kept that practice going. And it just, he felt his people just kind of relaxed knowing that he was available. 
And so I think finding times when you're going to be available is important. Number two is you've got to dial up the amount of time you are reaching out actively just to be in contact with people and just to see how they're doing and whatnot. Not from a micromanaging perspective, but just more on the relationship side of things. I just had a senior executive who reached out to me. He just started a job as a, as a chief marketing officer with a new company. Uh, he hadn't met anybody. All the interviews were done virtually. And this guy really takes his job seriously. He said, I've already developed kind of my 90-day plan and, and my 90-day onboarding process, but I've never done it virtually. What would you recommend? And I said, I would dial up the number of people you're talking to. And so we ended up interviewing as a team of 40, a global team of 40, ended up interviewing everybody, plus I think another 40 stakeholders across the organization, which is a significant amount of investment of time. In the end, he said he pulled together, he just sent me this email a couple of weeks ago, he pulled together kind of a, a report of his themes, presented it to the executive team, and the CEO and, his, and the peers on the executive team were blown away by what he had learned, but more importantly, all the feedback they got from their employees that he had talked to saying, this guy reached out and even talked to me. And, and, and now it's like he, everyone feels like he had been, he's been with the company forever and they've never met him in person. So to me, that was a great lesson that if you dial up the contact, dial up the relationship building, which we should have been doing anyways in the good old days, if that's what you call them, we just now need to be more deliberate about it because we can't rely on these accidental meetings in the hallway or these lunches that you might have with someone uh, because we're not co-located. So those are some of the, so I, it's not that this is insurmountable. We just now need to be really deliberate and planful on how we do these things. The challenge will be for some leaders is how do, where do I find the time uh, to do all this? But you realize you'll save time because there's, you know, you're, you're driving that greater clarity, you're driving the commitment, you're driving that sense of connection, and you'll, you'll save time because you'll have better execution. So that, that's kind of what we're, you know, kind of what we're learning. And, uh, and that's largely based on my experience of doing this for a, a number of years. Absolutely. And I, I want to go back to something you touched on when you said it's all about results, because I was having this same conversation with a colleague just last week. And it's interesting because, and in, in correct me if you think you know otherwise, but I feel like the older generation, right? Work was different. It's a different work environment. You get out of school, there's not that many options when it comes to jobs. I mean, there's, there's a handful of titles, I'm, I'm simplifying it, uh, but you work and you stay at a company, you know the path and you work your way up and that's what you do, right? And nowadays, I mean, there's so many different options, so many different titles. And hey, if there's not a title for what you're passionate about, well, we'll create one for you, right? Um, but there's things like chief innovation officer, chief revenue officer, customer success manager, things that didn't even exist in the past. So you have all this, right? And and back, I think back in the days, time was like this measurement of success. And I always say, you know, the only place we're doing time counts is in prison, right? So it, it's like shifting this mindset to like, hey, punching the clock, you're only going to be successful if you work 40, 50, 60, 70 hours. And if you don't work the, those number of hours, you're a slacker or, or whatever the, the word is, right? So it's something that's yeah. been on my mind. And, and I couple that with uh, a book by Greg McCowan. He wrote a book called um, Essentialism and his new book is called Effortless. And I'm reading that right now. And he's talking about, you know, we believe sometimes that the path of most resistance or like putting in this hard work and grinding, there's, there's some type of like praise that comes along with that, right? Where you're like, wow, you're such a hard worker. You know, you're really grinding it out and like stick with it. And sometimes that's not always the best approach. So it's interesting as I think about that and work with leaders and I, you know, I'm working with organizations where it's like the shift to results driven cultures where it's like, it doesn't matter if you work 80 hours a week as a leader. Yeah if you're not driving results, right? And, and you're getting frustrated because you're working all these hours, you're sacrificing your personal time, you're away from your family. But at the end of the day, it's like, who's more successful? The leader that works 30 hours a week and drives results or the leader that works 90 hours a week and is half as effective? What are your thoughts on that? Well, it's, well, just last week, we, you know, finished off a program with an organization. And that was, that was the primary challenge that, uh, and in this particular case, we're working with all the leaders, but this was kind of middle managers where they were feeling like um, exactly that, you know, overworked, 
they're they're coming in to save the day whenever whenever there's a problem, uh, you know, on the production floor. Uh, in fact, to such an extent, they would actually do the work <laughs> themselves, and it's not sustainable, right? That model is not sustainable. But what they have to understand, and that was the conversation, is you're in a leadership role, and oftentimes what drives that isn't because someone wants to necessarily work 80 hours a week. It's because they haven't spent enough time building the team that they lead. So they either don't trust the team's capabilities, don't trust that the team can actually deliver the outcome. And, and so that invariably pulls you down. And all of a sudden, what ends up happening is you're now a doer and no one's leading because your team isn't leading. That's your job. Sure. But if you haven't built the team, to perform at a high level, you know, that becomes, you know, that becomes an issue. The other underlying thing, and, and just today I, I posted uh, a blog post that actually goes back to the good old theory X, theory Y of management theory that came out in the 60s that, that kind of said, you know, there are people who believe that ultimately employees are lazy, um, they need to be pushed and motivated, or you believe leaders or, or employees are going to be responsible, self-motivated. And I think this, uh, this hybrid work experiment is going to challenge whether managers actually believe that, that employees, you know, which one are, are, you know, how do they think of employees? We, that's something we've never really had to confront. And now I think we really have to confront it. You know, I reference a quote by Ricardo Semler. He's a Brazilian entrepreneur, wrote a book a number of years ago called Maverick, who completely upended this higher hierarchy that it was a company founded by his dad, very traditional company, completely upended that structure, gave complete autonomy to employees to run the company, uh, do the, make the decisions and whatnot. And, and he had this great line in it. And he said, you know, we hire adults, bring them into our companies and treat them like children. Hmm. Interesting. And, and to me, that's, that's a critical part of what we're facing now. Right. So why, why, why the focus on results? And I, and in the book, I talk about sometimes leaders, mistake effort for results. Sure. So sitting there going, yeah, I'm like to your point, I'm working 80 hours a week. Well, you're not getting where we need to get to. The 80 hours a week don't matter. So you've got to take ownership for it. And what I find invariably, when you scratch the surface, you start looking at how confident are you in your team? Have you assembled the best team that you can? Have you supported their development so that you don't have to get into the minutia. You, you, you don't even have to worry about them because you know, you trust them implicitly that they've got it. Now, they're not going to be perfect. There's going to be mistakes. There'll be slip-ups. That happens. But at, you've surrounded yourself with as strong of a team as possible that then enables you to actually do the leadership work that you have to do. And that's, I think, what we've got to get to. So, if, you know, with your audience that's listening to this podcast, if you find yourself in that 80, 90 hour a week, and you're feeling like, you know, you're burning out at both ends of the candle, that's not sustainable. And sure. so you got to step back to think about, have you in fact invested the time you needed to build the strongest team you can? Because if you do, it completely frees you to really be leading. And that's not going to require the 80, 90 hours a week. That's not to say there aren't moments when in a business, it's all hands on deck and you've got a, you know, it requires a, a huge commitment of time that happens. But if that's the norm, then that's not sustainable. Absolutely. I, I absolutely agree with that. Final question for you. What piece of advice do you have for leaders that may be operating in this state of uncertainty? You know, whether it's their business or their personal life, or they just like mentally, they're just like, oh my gosh, what does the future look like? They're uncertain. It, it you know, it just engulfs them right? And it consumes so much of their thoughts. Like what advice do you have for somebody who's living in that state? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of inherent in what it means to be a leader. In many ways, it, it's inherent in what it means to be a human because any of the things we, we feel are certain uh, can very quickly, you know, uh, get upended. Uh, years ago, I, I read a book. Uh, he was a career counselor. Um, he coined this term positive uncertainty. And he said that we have to accept uncertainty as inherent in life, and we've got to find a way to become positive about it. Now, as a leader, uh, that means there are things we need to be doing. And it gets back to that, that earlier point of context, um, is that you as a leader have to find time to pause, look at what's coming, try to anticipate, um, try to shape the kind of the environments to lessen that load of uh, uncertainty. Because sometimes uncertainty 
happens and the feelings can grip you when you don't feel like you're in control. And so anticipating coming up with multiple scenarios of if this happened, what would I do? If that happened, what would I do? Those are ways of you great gaining control. You know, one idea. So clear on context. Number two is if you're in that grip of feeling like almost to the point where you're feeling it, you're having an anxiety attack because the uncertainty has gripped you so much, then, then you need to, you know, uh, and, the, and the research shows it, write down what you're going through and, and not type it in, write it down. The act of writing, you know, whether it's in a journal or, or whatever, really helps us process our ideas. It takes the mental clutter and, and all the ideas that are flowing in your brain and you just, you know, you download them on a piece of paper. Uh, and that, that is a way of helping kind of, you know, in the short term. Number three, I think the other things that contribute to that is, is really thinking about your whole life. And for example, are you overextended financially? Well, that, that's a huge stressor, particularly nowadays. How are the relationships with your family and those that need you the most? Those are all things that are sources of certainty. And I think we've got to be clear on what are, you know, what are those sources of certainty that I can draw on to deal with um, the uncertainty that I'm feeling. And then the final point, and I talk a lot about community. And that what we find is when we have a tribe of leaders that we can go to when we're feeling overwhelmed, uh, when we're feeling overworked and overloaded, which a lot of leaders are right now, uh, that it's a group of people you can go to and say, hey, Steve, you got 15 minutes. I just, I just got to vent. <laughs> and, and Steve is there, provides, you know, the safe haven um, for me to just, thanks, I need to get off my chest. Now let me get back to work. Now, Steve also plays a role that if I do that too regularly and now I'm a whiner and complainer, Steve will say, hey, Vince, uh, you've missed the point of this. And, and so, so that, that becomes important. So I think it gets back to what's the context, really get, you know, get clear on that. If you're in the grips of you know, where, where your mind's racing, just jot it all down on paper and, and maybe do that even on a regular, consistent basis. Number three, really define the sources of certainty in your life, your relationships, uh, the things that really matter to you, and then proactively build that community. And, and that's critical because leadership roles uh, are, are isolating and are lonely. And now that we're ro- working remotely and in a hybrid format, even more so. And so we, we've got to find a way to have those relationships uh, in our work lives uh, that help us deal with the amb- ambiguity and uncertainty. And that's just inherent in, in our world right now. And and I love those tips and those takeaways because I think they're you know spot on and I think they're tangible where people can really take those ideas and implement them in their lives and um, you know I appreciate you being on the show today Vince you know a lot of great insights came from you um, you know your books your your thought leadership that are out there I mean it's really impacting the world and it's just inspiring to me and and uh, I appreciate you taking the time to be on the show and helping the the leaders that are listening as well to step up their game and to be more accountable and to be more effective as leaders so um, I appreciate it well I appreciate the opportunity Steve it was a great conversation and uh, appreciate your support. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show. If there's any way I can be helpful to you and your business, or if you have feedback or ideas regarding this podcast, shoot me an email at contact at cultivar.com. I would love to connect. All the best.